Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hello, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. Today is day one, podcast episode number one of season two. I cannot believe we're already here. I remember signing off last August and thinking that I would have, you know, September, October, November, December, four months off, and that it was going to be almost too long of a break. And here we are. I blinked and we're already back at it, but I could not be more excited to be here. Four months, if you were curious, is just long enough that you start to really, truly miss it and you're excited to put back in the work. And that's exactly where I'm at now. I love January. I started my Instagram account January 1st. I had just had a baby October 27th of 2015. And then I was walking in my neighborhood with my little baby strapped to me in an ergo. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to January 1st start doing one doodle a day, eventually turned into one painting a day. The rest is history. And, you know, I feel like sometimes January gets a little bit of a bad rap. It's, it's kind of a seasonal lull. It's, you know, early winter. And in a lot of ways, it's not a very good time to start something. There's a big argument that you really should wait for spring. And I, I certainly... I can agree with that and I I see the wisdom there but that being said you know it's an arbitrary start date and sometimes it's the cake in the pants you need to start something and that's certainly been my case have I had more new year's resolutions that I haven't fulfilled than ones I have yes absolutely I'm human (laughs) but one of the most amazing choices challenges that I gave myself ever in my life which was to consistently make art and more importantly the consistently make bad art but more on that later (laughs) Um, became one of the most transformative and best decisions I ever made in my life and so for that reason I will always carry a small torch for starting something on January 1st which brings me to kind of the goal of today's episode and actually the goal of a four-part series that I'm doing in January which is a four-part series on motivation I know it's cliche (laughs) but I was thinking in my break you know if I if if someone wanted to talk to me like what are the things that Sari has like maybe expertise on or has an interesting approach to because you know I have thoughts about everything but not all of them are valuable and I was thinking I think if someone did a scan of my life motivation would be something that would pique someone's interest and I say that because and I'll very briefly run run this down um motivation has been very important and intentional theme in my life I would definitely not consider myself a great self-starter certainly struggle with executive dysfunction even still and now Um, to the point where even when I was young I had to decide um, to take it on kind of bull by the horns so to speak and so I remember I wanted to get good at running and my dad sort of told me like I was the kind of person who never completed anything and like I said very true my nature is very stop and start something's fun for a second and then I drop it the minute the dopamine stops coming and I challenged myself to do something intentionally do something consistently and I remember when the payoff started happening for those choices it felt like magic but Don't let the magic fool you. Before I got to the point where it was magical, where the consistency paid off, I basically had to trick myself into being motivated. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk through my reframing tools that I use for motivation, how to be compassionately motivated, how to be motivated in a way that isn't 
gym bro, get up at 4 a.m. and grind and white knuckle your way through life because I don't think, in my personal opinion, that that's a very uh, long-term solution. It's not compassionate. It's not, to use a buzzword here, sustainable. And so I wanted to share the things that I do that I do feel like are sustainable ways to be incredibly motivated. So from someone who was motivated enough to get a running scholarship through consistency, to put themselves through college while working a job and being a student athlete, and then to start January 1st of 2016 and post basically every single day for almost three years with a whole new painting every day. But even still now with the output I do, um, I would I, I would be remiss to not mention what I've learned about motivation. Obviously, there's a lot of privilege and luck in, in there and I will parse through that. But I also think that there's some insights that I'm really excited to share with you guys. So today we're going to talk about rock bottom. <laughs> I know, motivation, rock bottom, what do they have to do with one another? I'll paint that picture in just a moment. But if you want to learn what I think the most important core aspect to motivation is, then we're going to have to talk about rock bottom. So if that sounds interesting to you, let's dive in and thank you for being here. So last season, I made a podcast episode about the movie montage moment. To briefly summarize what that means, I painted a picture of like a good, like cheesy 80s movie and how in any good motivational 80s movie, there was a montage, whether it's Rocky or something else, where the protagonist sets out on a mission, they're going to do something, they commit themselves to it. And then you see this, <laughs> the director, the editors put put together over like a pop ballad, like a power dance ballad, um, a rock ballad, um, all of these scenes of someone working hard and grinding and how that's a way to show that there's a tremendous amount of time being put into something and that someone is singularly focused, right? We're not seeing internal dialogue. We're just seeing someone work, work, work. And, you know, I made the point that we all need to allow ourselves to have time to just work and sort of not over-intellectualize our choices and to get that sort of payout. I said it much more eloquently in that episode, so you can go check that out if you're curious about that. But one thing that sort of I kept thinking about from that episode is that there's something that precludes <laughs> that montage that I think is important. And that is another sort of cinematic trope, um, a trope I've seen in books um, all over the place, which is the proverbial rock bottom moment we know it it's always usually some form of our main character our protagonist <laughs> is spiraling their life is out of control there's shame there's all these negative emotions and they sort of hit this place where they look around them the room is in disarray their life is in disarray and they look in a mirror whether it's like literally or figuratively <laughs> and they don't like what they see and all of a sudden they change right their trajectory goes from down 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 to you know whether it's the climax of the movie or not then they change they, they challenge themselves they're going to grow they're going to make a difference and we see this a lot because that is a big part of like the hero's journey um, I'm a big fan of the hero's journey arc I try to sew it into so much of my content and my artwork um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about what I actually think happens in the rock bottom moment. So to give you a little bit more insight into how I got here and how, why I think about this moment so much, I think it's important to talk about a phase I was in in my early to mid-20s, maybe a little bit in my late 20s, but for, for, for close to like seven, eight years, I consumed memoirs, specifically memoirs about addicts and um, alcoholics, like 
fervently. <laughs> like, um, and the reason I did that, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have never struggled with substance abuse because I've, because I grew up with addicts and I, I just intentionally chose not to have that in part of my life sort of preventative, um, you know, but I, uh, I also know that being raised by addicts, a lot of my coping t- tools and my, my, you know, my, the part of me that <laughs> avoids pain and seeks pleasure is really strong. I have always wanted to read more about addicts and I guess like more to get even more specific. I cut off my parents for my life, both struggled with addiction. My dad was more of a traditional alcoholic and my mom um, struggled with various substances, uh, you know it's deeper than that but just for to you know to just touch on that lightly anyways and um I wanted to know why they were the way they were I was always really curious like how does someone who who loved me and who like did a lot right how do they choose drugs over their children like what is going on in their mind and I I really wanted to know and so it led me to reading a tremendous amount of books on it on addiction so if there's any memoir about addiction that came out prior to like 20 19 2020 maybe um I almost certainly have read it and I'm not kidding (laughs) like I have an audible hound you're never fully cured from addiction that's really not how that works but you know usually if you get to the point where you can write a memoir about it you have found some peace even if it's for a moment you know we can sort of assume that to some degree um and so I was always curious because I've lost friends to addiction and I've also seen you know my parents intimately struggle with it and um not everyone makes it out. I'm unfortunately intimately aware of that really hard truth. And so I, I've, one of the things I look for, you know, and my parents never turned it around. They're still struggling. And so one thing I always looked for when I read these books, in addition to understanding my parents, was also what made people choose to turn it around, to admit that they had a problem and to, to do the tremendously difficult work of turning it around. I cannot tell you how much respect I have for people who have struggled with addiction and also people who have overcome or are working through addiction. I just, tremendous amount of respect. I can't emphasize it enough. Um, And it's incredibly hard. And so I've always been curious, what turns someone around? And one of the themes I noticed in the books, um, the memoirs specifically, is that people tended to have either support system or something within them, a core of I deserve better than this. I, I'm going to call it like self-respect or um, self-love or, you know, s- something like that. <laughs> it's the, it's not contrary to what we see often depicted in movies. And I think contrary to how a lot of us think about a rock bottom moment, how we're like, you know, we can't help someone because they have to get to their rock bottom. What I think happens when someone gets to a rock bottom moment is at, it's an intersection of two things. It's an intersection of someone's surroundings being dire. You know, it is shame it is all these negative things um but it has to run into a conflict it have to it has to be incongruent with something it has to not fit something um there has to be dissonance but that someone's negative circumstances and the shame they feel has to eventually butt heads with something inside themselves whether it's deep down quiet whatever it is they have to run into a point where they say, I deserve better than this. I do not deserve these, the situation. I do not deserve this shame. I deserve to live in a place with more love and peace and acceptance. And I think what's important and powerful about that is like I grew up in an environment and in a culture, not just family of origin, but just culture at large, 
where when it comes to people who are struggling with something, we sort of believe that like if we shame people enough, if we put them down enough, if we make their life hard or uncomfortable enough, that that will motivate them to turn it around and change, that that will cause them to, things are so bad that like they're going to change things. And like, not, I, I, not only do I sort of disagree with this, but I think, I think that if you don't understand that, that pressure, which most of the time our community and our friends and our family and other people don't actually need to put on us. Most of us are pretty good at feeling shame on our own, whether or not we came from chaotic childhoods or otherwise. Like if you're part of our culture, you understand that shame is something that pops up pretty organically and that people are pretty sensitive to that for the most part. Um, But generally speaking, I feel like if you love someone, yourself included, and you want them to change their behavior and to sort of do something different move in a different direction and have the motivation that that requires to change that because any change no matter if it's like doing something tremendous like ending a drug addiction or an addiction to um, any substance or if it's small enough like committing to it a painting challenge or going to more museums or being more artful in your everyday life whatever run run the gamut right in order to to have the motivation to sustain that kind of change I actually think that the most important aspect to that equation isn't the shame, <laughs> but it's it's the love. It's the love for self. It's the love for the people who you're trying to motivate. And I think of this a lot because I always think of whenever I read these books, like what do people's moment look like? A lot of times these authors would devote a whole chapter to it. And a theme that I saw was that like my dad loved me the whole time. My dad, you know, didn't enable, but my dad would, you know, in this in the book or my parents, or my friends, or my grandparent, or my coach, whatever it was, was consistently there for me. That can look different in everyone's story, okay? For some people, it is going to look like enabling to others, but the point is, the theme that I noticed in reading these, what was probably amounting to a couple hundred books, and certainly I felt it in myself, (laughs) is that when you want to change, you're capable of it if you think that you're worthy of all of that tremendous work. That hard work and motivation isn't a product of shame and grit and and anger and frustration but it's actually a product of your surroundings not matching up with the love and the dignity that your inner self requires I feel like this got really deep but I just I wanted to share that because I would feel remiss to talk about motivation because I am going to work my way in my other episodes (laughs) to, to like more like anecdotal like try this and motivate yourself this way and I I before I dive into something like that, I want to use long form content this episode to really to talk about the importance of self love and not in just some silly platitude. I, I think it's it's the, one of the most important things you can do for yourself and sort of to, to get back to my own personal story because I suppose that's all I can actually speak from. Um, that is exactly what happened with my artwork. So you know I. <laughs> graduated from college I had this great degree in art and graphic design and I was excited to get out and get a graphic design job and when life didn't quite work out the way I wanted to I found out I was pregnant pretty young and I just had all the the trauma from my childhood finally catch up to me I was no longer running from it literally and figuratively and the thing that caused me to change to change how I did everything to to stop doing stuff for others and start doing stuff for myself um was was radical self-love it was I was working with a therapist by that point I was trading therapy for graphic design and social media um 
you know, help at that point. And, you know, one of the most important exercises I did was I closed my eyes and I pictured a, I forget if it was like a 10 year old or an eight year old version of myself next to me. And for the first time in my life, I could see a version of myself who didn't deserve what had happened to her in her childhood. And so I moved from being a person who felt like that they deserved to be unhappy to some extent and they didn't deserve the time and energy to make art and to make bad art <laughs> and that I had to be make perfect art in order to warrant that time the energy the space and the resources to make art and it was whenever I had that mindset shift that the younger version of me the year the eight-year-old version of me deserved to sit down and play with watercolors and allow myself 20 minutes a day hour a day to indulge in that that I was able to find what I think would end up becoming the core of my motivation. And so if whatever I set my mind to, if I feel like it's in alignment with giving myself love and dignity, I know that I can do it. And I've built that up through trust and there's a lot of other things that play into this. But (laughs) figuring out how to convince yourself of your worth and sort of courting yourself is like one way to think of it, earning back your trust, Treating yourself with dignity, giving yourself self-respect is the core to any and all motivation in my personal opinion. But I want to leave you guys before I jump off of this episode um, with some like actionable steps of what that might look like, right? Like if I have spent the first half of this episode, first 20 minutes of this episode sort of urging you um, of the importance of, of building up that sort of self-respect, self-compassion, then let's talk about how we can do that. I mentioned that exercise I did in therapy, which is like a watershed moment for me where I sat next to a younger version of myself and I, you know, can't recommend doing those kinds of exercise enough. It's not for everyone. I've talked to many people about this in person over my life and some people it's like, you know, that's not where my struggles lie. And I would just like to say before I jump into some just like advice that like it's different for everyone. Like one person, it might be building up trust by doing something every single day and being really consistent. For someone else, it might just be, you know, working through negative self-talk and really putting in the effort to curb that. Negative self-talk was something I definitely intentionally had to work through. My parents were very um, careless with the names they threw around to us. And what starts out, your parents talking to you very quickly metabolizes into your own self-talk if you're not really careful. And so that was something I had to um, be really careful of. I had to stop being unkind to myself. Uh, That was difficult until I started having children and I realized that I would never speak to my children that way, the way I was talking to myself internally. And that was another pretty good kick in the pants. And I'll say for all of this, as much as I've had very insightful moments to really challenge my reframing, Typically, it's it's a reframing plus work and effort and pattern changing and all of those things. But again, the core to that change and that motivation to change comes from that sort of resounding self-love that it's important to start with. But anyways, but I'll just jump into, um, you know, I went and I made a list of some ways that you can sort of create that within yourself. Um, another thing that was really helpful as reading books, um, again, it's not for everyone, but there are abridged versions of these books on YouTube, but I, I recommend reading them. The first one was Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. This is a fantastic book. Um, you know, if you tend to just intellectualize, <laughs> you know, it may not be like transformative, but for me, it was insightful to see that it wasn't just like the, the big egregious things my parents did, did to me and my brother and sister during our childhood that caused the trauma, that it was also these like, you know, inability to to take responsibility and all these sort of minor things that all added up and I think 
reading the book validated that I would say that that's the big takeaway there and you know reading in literature how people are supposed to be treated especially if that's not how you grew up is incredibly transformative and it starts to restore some dignity that if you had parents that weren't really careful about that you probably don't didn't walk away from your childhood with and it kind of to me like an analogy here feels like (laughs) like if you are an athlete and you don't work like your core how like you might be okay in the beginning but eventually things will start to break down I feel like having that self-value and that dignity and giving yourself the love and compassion it takes to do anything in life really (laughs) um like doing the core work you can't you you know you have to show up and do things in life you have to be dutiful you have to show up for your kids you have to go to work you have you know we we live in a society where you have to kind of keep going and in order to do that if you are working with like the an atrophy of sort of that love for yourself I feel like eventually you're going to end up in like burnoutville or you're going to end up really hurting yourself so reading that book gave me like a roadmap of like what is the correct way to treat you know a child how do you be emotionally mature what would that look like and that was a huge moment for me I reread that book every couple years it's quick it's little again I will try to see if I can find a free link somewhere because it's so good um and it's really wonderful. On that note, even if you don't have children, I do recommend reading um, a book called No Bad Kids by Janet Lansbury. I know recommending a parenting book to people who maybe don't have kids seems a little out of left field, but just flip through this book, seeing the way that Janet Lansbury proposes treating toddlers and children and people who do not have control of their prefrontal cortex, how it's both guidance, structure, and dignity at the same time, was huge for me because I like I think a lot of people if I might assume (laughs) really struggle with the idea of like permissive and passive versus authoritarian how you kind of either pivot from like being really strict and structured with yourself and shame driven and like intensity driven and like you just got to do better like you just need to versus like being incredibly passive with yourself and I think when I read No Bad Kids it taught me and something I use in my parenting but even just like for my own inner healing it taught me that there's this balance where you do provide structure, you do make choices out of like love for yourself and future self and not just out of that like seeking pleasure, avoiding pain part of your brain, but you make choices that sort of honor that higher version of yourself, <laughs> if I may say so. And then you and then you put that into action with tremendous grace and understanding. And I feel like if you can as an adult have that that that's kind of the magic and I will say spoiler for my other episodes where I get into the weeds of what motivation you know tactics look like that's the magic sauce for me it's always been treat yourself like you're a big toddler like love and structure and sort of like don't beat yourself up for for being like for not being motivated to do stuff that's good for you like don't waste energy being like that doesn't make sense like I don't waste my I you know I have a a three-year-old and I don't waste a lot of my energy being like why why are you you know wanting to put your shoes on the wrong feet I just it is it is what it is you know what's the phrase like you either can cling on and and hang on to the um picturing like a back of a wagon and be dragged or you can let go And I feel like the more you can find places in your life to let go in a way that still honors your dignity, right? It's not let go of everything. It's not stop showering, brushing your teeth and making your bed, but it's, it's where can you let go? And I think one of the most free places where you can sort of let go is 
asking yourself like why why aren't you more motivated why aren't you a self-starter and just accept (laughs) that that is don't shame yourself and instead treat like you would a toddler be really creative how can I trick myself into doing this how can I reframe this for myself how can I you know like you can be frustrated that like you're not motivated (laughs) or you or that you're not doing xyz or that you're not you know whatever you're trying to improve on But instead of like trying to shame your way out of it, getting to the beginning of this episode, be creative in your approach and sort of just let, like, let go. Let that be part of who you are and trick yourself into it. And then finally, on the book front, I would recommend any books that are more pertinent to your particular uh, struggles in life. So for me, it was Adult Children of Alcoholics. It very much mirrored adult children of emotionally mature parents. Just, you know, if you don't like to read, just read emotionally mature parents um but I love reading and so reading the book about adult children of alcoholics offered me some pretty unique insights that I still cherish um so that would be my last recommendation for books on that note of learning how to reckon with your inner toddler okay let's the the trick to any and all of my motivation is just assume that there's a part of me that is like wise and wants the best and wants to be an artist and wants to be a good mom and wants to live with dignity (laughs) but also there's a part of me who is an indignant toddler who just wants to eat chocolate chips and watch youtube shorts and instead of having those things be at odds with each other sort of finding a symbiosis between those two and you know one of the ways I do that is I learn to set more realistic goals like I always think of <laughs> that part in ET where they're tr- I think they're trying to coax ET to come down a hallway or something or stairs and they put Reese's pieces like in a row I think of it like anytime I'm trying to meet a goal and it's huge right it's like I want to write a book <laughs> like that goal seems tremendous And I try to visualize what does laying the first Reese's Pieces look like, okay? Read a book, read Mary Carr's On Memoir. You've wanted to read that forever. Instead of trying to convince Toddler Sari to (laughs) go write a book, because that's never going to happen, I am going to instead say, okay, first Reese's Pieces is read this memoir book. Second Reese's Pieces is find an accountability partner. Third Reese's Pieces is start writing chapter ideas, etc., etc., etc. And you know, the smaller you need to make those goals, the better. Maybe your first thing is just downloading the book or um, going to the library and finding that book. Maybe your first thing is just setting a timer before you, you know, go to bed at night (laughs) or whenever you work and just making yourself right for 10 minutes, even if it's just gibberish. You know, small, small, small steps are the way to go. Small and consistent, right? They didn't lure E.T. down the stairs with just one Reese's. They moved him through the house with each little recess. So setting small goals, that's another huge, huge um, way to sort of restore that trust in yourself and to to cultivate that self-compassion, right? Challenging yourself with a big goal and then shaming yourself when you miss, that's not productive for anyone. (laughs) I'm not saying that you have to have children in order to develop these skills at all. There's so many ways we can nurture one another. Um, but that that's been how I've learned a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, I don't recommend, (laughs) can't say I recommend having kids as a way to heal your own trauma. You know, I think ideally one comes before the other. Um, but the way it happened for me was I realized like I had to get my, my shit together because I had kids. And so I, I pretty intensely, learned a lot of this stuff and and started doing the tremendously hard work of this when I had kids because I still didn't have the self-worth in a lot of ways (laughs) to make myself 
do this work because I deserved the inner peace that comes with this kind of healing. I just knew that I needed to be regulated enough for kids. And the side effect of that is now that I'm, I am a more peaceful place to live. But yes, celebrating small achievements. So that's how you motivate little kids, right? Think of art because this is an art podcast. I'm an artist. (laughs) The first time your kid grabs crayons and makes those scribbly marks, you know, you celebrate you're excited you know you you laugh and you hang it on the wall my house has so many of my kids illustrations all over the walls I you know my my three-year-old is still kind of in scribble stick figure phase she loves doing abstract little blobby paintings in my studio and dousing them in glitter (laughs) um but I have an eight-year-old who's a very good artist and so his graphic novels are hung up on the wall he has a self-portrait I just put on the fridge like yesterday and you know are they the Mona Lisa? I mean, no, none of my works are masterpieces either, but you have to learn to celebrate because I think what happens when you don't learn to do that is you sort of, you become a little bit disembodied from your own inner perfectionist. You know, that part of you that does have the taste that knows what good art looks like. And if we only celebrate when we meet that goal, we, in a lot of ways, effectively created a place where we never celebrate or we hardly ever celebrate. And we need that dopamine. And and I'll just tell you the little secret to this is the first few times you do it, you celebrate a tiny little win. That's not that big a deal. It will feel silly. You will feel like you're pretending. But eventually you do it long enough and it starts to become like natural. And you start to notice little wins everywhere. You know, tiny little things become big reasons to celebrate. And the thing is, most of our days are mundane and they're not full of big exciting moments we don't all go to disney every day and the more you can learn to celebrate those wins even if it's just that inner like cherishing of that moment or or if it's like what i do and i like play music and go crazy the more you start to see those wins and i think i think it's that steady slow (laughs) progress of you know addressing those moments that sort of does the quiet work of building up your inner um, confidence and your inner sort of self-love and self-dignity. Another really important aspect to this has to do with your relationships. And, you know, this, people have been dedicated entire books and series and podcasts to this. So I, I cannot dive deep <laughs> into what this looks like. But what I'll say here is that it is important to have even just someone, even if, you know, even if it's not your whole community, because it's not always possible. I always hear self-help advice about relationships. And I think especially if you're in kind of a less than ideal, like maybe financial situation, or you come from a community that has suffered under trauma, under, you know, capitalism or colonialism, some of the advice about like boundaries and dignity and having people treat you right starts to not always pan out. And there's a lot of nuance there. So I want to give some space for that. But that being said, I think it's wildly important to make sure you have at least one person that you're you're intimate with, you're close with, friends, family, whatever it is, who sees you and respects you in the same way that you want to be treated. Whether you're currently treating yourself with that dignity or if that's something you're working towards, having someone who sees that and treats you the same way is really, really important. I think sometimes having someone treat you the way that you want to be treated and no one's perfect, but you know, close, close enough is willing to grow with you, etc. can take what can feel like you just having this like inner talk and like all of a sudden you it feels like you have this inflated self-worth. That's what it feels like in the beginning, by the way, when you start doing this, when you come from a childhood where your inner self-talk is miserable and you have really low self-worth, um, 
you start to feel like doing stuff like saying I am worthy of love and I'm worthy of making bad art, it starts to feel like egotistical and it's not. Getting yourself to a position where you're like, I am another human. I'm worthy of love. I'm not more special than anyone. I'm just a human who deserves to make some art every once in a while and have a good life. Like once you get to the point where you have that less negatively focused mindset, I think it's easier. Anyways, but having someone else in your ecosystem who shares that belief with you and it feels that way and treats you like that can make it seem more real like it's not just like some internal self-dialogue which is valid your internal thoughts are really important I'm not downplaying it but I think having someone whether it's a friend or family or whatever who also shares that belief with you and treats you that way ideally it's everyone in your community I think is really important and touch in with that person and build those relationships and if not find people who will treat you like that again easier said than done I'm glossing over what could individually be its own like lifelong conversation but I would be remiss to not mention that we are not islands we can't do this alone and it's important to reach out and find those people and the last thing I'll say before I end this episode is the importance of allowing yourself to make ugly artwork (laughs) we're getting a little more specific to artists but I think that for me another pretty key watershed moment was to make what I would consider for me pretty crappy artwork (laughs) I had worked to make really good artwork in college I know I've said this a lot but um, you know I had a great professor I had a great studio structure and I had to make really cruddy little drawings they're still up if you want to go look at them and it wasn't until I made that art and I posted it online which felt incredibly vulnerable all while starting to do this work of (laughs) self-worth that I realized like you you don't die if you put out something terrible and I know that seems really dramatic and I'm I definitely have a flair for the dramatic (laughs) um but if you grew up in a childhood or in a, a household or you've been with someone who sort of reinforces the idea that perfection or an attempt at a perfection is demanded out of you where love and affirmation is so scarce that you cannot attempt and fail without the whole ecosystem being disrupted, then the idea of making something that isn't instantly perfect is terrifying. And, And to do that and then share it with the world, extra terrifying. But the thing is, there's enough healed people out there. There's enough people who are kind and caring. And ironically, we're all a lot kinder, I think, to each other than ourselves sometimes, that you'll post it and maybe it doesn't go viral and maybe someone's like, your portrait's eyes are too close together, <laughs> whatever. You don't, you know, I I'm, I don't know that I always agree with exposure therapy, not that it matters what I think, but I will say if you're doing the work and you found the value in showing up and making art anyways, and if you trust that you'll grow and you'll, you'll get better and that you'll improve and find your style, if you can hang on to those things, if you feel secure enough in maybe those things, it's okay to share something with the world. And not have it be the best representation of yourself. I think it's important to know that you can put that out there. And you can have what is your best to try. Even if it's just for that day. Out in the world. And it's not that great. And you do keep breathing. You will keep breathing. You'll have a pit in your stomach. Especially in the beginning. And you know you'll keep thinking about it. But the ability to sort of keep confronting that negative sensation. With like you deserve to make art. You'll get better. I think is a for me anyways, has been a wonderfully healing 
thing to go through. So not everyone's there yet. I'm not, I would never encourage everyone to just make art if they're not comfortable, but if you're already doing the work, um, I do think it, it for me was a tremendously healing thing to take in. Just be kind to yourself. You know, if, if you can do it and come back to the, the work and the labor of like actively being kind to yourself, then I think that's where a lot of the change happens, at least for me. I know it's different for everyone. So with that, I hope you learned something today <laughs> or like gleaned a little bit of insight from that. I, I wanted to talk about, you know, what does it look like? What is rock bottom? Like I've always been fascinated with like, what does rock bottom look like? Why do some people not make it out? What makes someone hit that low and turn around? And I've always assumed it wasn't shame. I just, from my personal experience, I was like, I felt shame and shame feels like an avalanche and I think hope and belief in yourself feels like a tiny little flame under that avalanche and you just gotta melt your way out I don't know that's not right there's probably not enough oxygen under there anyways whatever bad analogy but I, I want you guys to know that that's kind of my thoughts on it so whether you start now you start in spring you start 10 years from now whatever your challenge looks like for you know that if you have a core of self-love and dignity and respect you can do anything it's a powerful tool don't sleep on it don't assume that shame is how you get there shame is not how you change <laughs> um but yeah thank you for listening and the final thing i want to bring up before you guys go is that today's episode is sponsored by my new book so i'm putting a book called modern still life from fruit bowls to disco balls i worked on it all last year it's a step-by-step -step painting book and if you have followed me for a long time you know that step-by-steps are something that i'm very passionate about i've made paintings about step-by-steps and i've also got my start teaching doing carousels where I did step one, step two, step three, step four. And so having a book that's step-by-step -step painting that's instructional in nature feels very in alignment with what I do and how I show up on social media. So I'm really excited for you guys to see it. You can pre-order it right now. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, but um, yeah, it comes out June 11th and I can't wait for you guys to read it. I will continue talking about it. Don't worry. But if you wanted to go check it out, definitely do that and yeah thank you so much for listening hopefully it was a good episode i really appreciate you being here and i'll talk to you next week when our continuation of our motivation series is going to be talking about daily painting challenges this is something i've done for years and i've recently noticed a little bit of pushback against it so i'm going to talk about the pros and the cons and lessons and key takeaways from doing daily painting for basically three years with an original painting every single day so Stay tuned for that and happy creating.